uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, if you don't have your Bibles, there's a pew Bible in front of you. So if you want to grab that pew Bible and grab it, we're in John chapter 6. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. That is our habit. That is our custom here at Grace. Let me grab my notes here. Um, as we think about uh, John chapter 6, this is a story that you have heard over and over again. And so you've heard this story. It's the feeding of the, of the 5,000. And it's probably not just the feeding of the 5,000. That's 5,000 men. That's how they counted. There were probably upwards of m- maybe minimum, scholars would say maybe 12,000, maybe upwards of 20,000 people that Jesus feeds with these, you know, five small barley loaves and two sardines really is what they were, two small fish. And one of the reasons that you've heard this story over and over and over again is this. This is the only um, This is the only miracle that is recorded in all of the gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give an account of this particular story. Now that is significant because it made a huge impact on every person, all of the eyewitnesses that are writing the gospels. You know, two of the gospels were eyewitness accounts and two were written, given by an eyewitness account. And that story, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, carried through throughout the gospels. It was a significant story. And, and really, as you look at this story, you, you look at it and you go, wow, you know, Jesus did an amazing thing in terms of feeding these people. But oftentimes I think we have a hard time with familiar stories applying it to ourselves. Like, what does this mean for me? So the question for us is before we read the text, and we're about to read the text, is this. Do you believe this? And what does this have to do with me? <laughs> like, what does it have to do with me? This feeding of the 5,000. So, again, let me give you, as, um, as John has given us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he gives us the reason why he wrote the book that he wrote. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we're going to be reading John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. That there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, this story that we see here is, again, we've just come off of you know, Jesus giving a commentary uh, following the, the healing of the, of the man at the pool on the Sabbath. And what we see is that after this commentary, Jesus, after this, after these things, after Jesus has revealed to the Jews um, that he is the Son of Man, that he is equivalent with God, that he is God, he says these things, and now he goes on to do another miracle. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of the arc of Jesus' ministry, because in John chapter 6, we are on an uptrend, right? Like things are going really, really well for Jesus and his ministry. As a matter of fact, if he had a ministry coach, he would go, boy, Jesus, you're doing a really, really good job right here. I mean, Jesus' ministry is ascending. People are coming to him. I mean, thousands of people are coming to him. And to the point where after this miracle, after they have fed him, they have seen miracles, they have seen healings, they go, we need to make him king, and thereby we can ascend with him. Now, John 6 is a very troubling passage because Jesus is ascending. Next week, we'll talk about him walking on water. He's continuing to ascend. And at this point, the disciples are like, man, I hitched my wagon to the right horse. He goes, I have bought the best stock that I have ever bought in my life. The dividend is unlimited, and I am on the rise. And then Jesus, at the end of John chapter 6, just absolutely shatters his ministry. Absolutely. He begins to say things like, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part of me. And the disciples are like, come again? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus, we've got thousands, you know, you can imagine Peter here for a second. This is not, this is extra biblical. Please forgive me. Um, but you can imagine Peter going, hey, hey, the son of man is tired. You know, he's going to come back out to do another set in a little bit. But that whole eating and drinking the blood and my body and all that kind of stuff, we're, we're going to, no, no, just stick around, stick around, stick around, guys. It's, it's going to get better. But Jesus doubles down on that at the end of John chapter 6. But we're at the beginning. We're on the ascent in John chapter 6. We haven't gotten there. We'll get there in a few weeks. But, but here's what we find in this passage. We find that this passage is talking about the, the nature of who Jesus is and that this was a miracle. Now, there are, some, um, there are some who would say that this really wasn't a miracle. And there are what we would describe as liberal scholars or, or people who, who don't believe in the supernatural, who don't believe in a miracle. And, and R.C. Sproul has said this. Uh, let me read this. He says, that The feeding of the 5,000 has been targeted by those who, since the Enlightenment, have embraced the philosophy called naturalism. Now, naturalism, as an ism, simply teaches that we have nature around us, and nature is all there is. There is no supra, a super nature. So anything that we find in the written record of the New Testament that suggests a supernatural event must be rejected out of hand. If we are naturalists, we cannot believe in the supernatural. Ergo, anything that pretends to be supernatural must be rejected as unscientific and irrational. And here's the problem. The naturalists, when the naturalists invaded the church in the 19th century, we saw a movement spawned in Europe called the 19th century liberalism. It was not just liberalism in general, rather it had a specific agenda, a specific philosophy, and a specific theology. 
19th century liberalism assumed that biblical criticism had demonstrated Scripture to be false in many places. Systematically, 19th century liberals took out the New Testament record anything that smacked of supernaturalism. The virgin birth was severely attacked, as were the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the transfiguration of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. All the miracles of Jesus were thrown out wholesale. Now, this criticism not only affected this, but they would use John chapter 6, and they would say this, you know, this really didn't happen. What really happened was everybody was like, hey, I'll give a little, you give a little, we're all going to give a little bit of food, and and we're going to do this. And they would say it's not just a supernatural miracle, but it was a miracle of the heart. It was a miracle of the heart. They all had food, and they began to share it within them, you know, or among them. That's not what the gospel writers say. The gospel writers say, no, man, there was no food anywhere. Now, Sproul says this as as well. There was actually one of them who actually, uh, one of these um, liberals, actually, uh, these these people who were not Christians, but who were in the church in the midst of this liberal movement, uh, a man by the name of Pearson, who I actually really appreciate that he was actually um, uh, true to what he said, said to his colleagues in the church, we need to be honest, leave the ministry and shut down our churches because we don't believe historic Christianity. He was actually pretty faithful to what he believed. Um, Early in the 20th century, there was a a neo-Orthodox man named Emil Bruner who wrote this. When he looked at the theories of the 19th century theologians, he said, what this is, is unbelief. This is unbelief. Now, why did Jesus do this particular miracle? Why did he take, you know, these five small loaves, these two fish, and what is he saying about himself? Now, I think this is what's really at the heart of this miracle. And what John is saying is John is saying that out of these five loaves and two fish, Jesus multiplied it to feed maybe twelve to 20,000 people. And this is what it demonstrates. It demonstrates the divine power and majesty of Jesus. It's a sign, John tells us, of the transcendence of Jesus. It's a witness to his divine attributes. It says something of his invincible power over nature, over creation, over bread, over atoms and molecules and forces. This is the one who defies gravity and walks on water. He defies disease and death. It's a picture of his inscrutable grandeur. It demonstrates the power of his will. Every particle in the universe is subject to Jesus. There are no recalcitrant forces to this universe. There are no black holes that defy his will. Everything is subject to him. Everything. Nothing can stand its ground against Jesus and say to him, thus far and no further. Now, Derek Thomas, a professor that I had at RTS, has said this. He says this is what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is saying to every force in the entire universe, in the midst of this miracle, he is saying, I am king, you see. My will is supreme. Everything is subject to him. There's not a square inch of this entire universe over which Jesus does not say, mine. Do you see what this says? The will of God, the will of Jesus is the most ultimate thing in all the universe. 
what's the most ultimate thing in all the universe? It's not some Star Warsian force be with you. It's not some inner light. It's not some impersonal rationality that ensures the coherence of everything. It is the will of Jesus Christ, before whom every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord of all. Our galaxy, the center of which is 25,000 light years from here, is a place with black holes, white dwarfs, and neutron stars, and supernova, and a sea of million degree gases. And there are some 200 billion solar systems in our galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies. The mind boggles, and here it is. And Jesus is Lord over every single one. That's what this miracle is saying to the people who are sitting by the Sea of Galilee. That Jesus is divine and majestic and in control. And that should give us great comfort as the people of God. It should give us great comfort. And yet, in the midst of this passage, you know, as Jesus is interacting with disciples, those who are believing him, now, now notice what it says in, in, in chapter 2. You know, Jesus went to the other side, to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, and, and they were following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, and they're like, you know, some people were probably going because they believed, some people wanted to see a miracle, some people wanted to see a trick, you know, some people wanted to go because it was a spectacle. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why people show up. I mean, once a crowd gathers, I mean, there's more and more and more. Um, now, it was Passover, so those people who were going, the, the, the Feast of the Jews, we'll, we'll bring up that in the, in the subsequent weeks. Um, but lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, now this is great. Okay, get this. This is really, really important here. So you got that all the disciples and you get the 12 are those who are closest to Jesus. And, and Jesus goes to Philip and he says, Philip. And boy, I tell you what, when Jesus singles you out in the midst of a crowd, you got to wonder what's going to happen. But he asked Philip this question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this is just a crazy question asked by Jesus, okay? Because I don't know if you know this, but they didn't have grocery stores. Grubhub was not a thing. You know, Uber Eats, none of that. They had no way of actually doing this. I mean, there were no hot and ready pizzas, you know, ready to be uh, gotten and eaten. I mean, Jesus goes to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And look at verse 6. And he says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, the reason I say that to you is, does Jesus test Philip? Absolutely. Does God test you today? Absolutely. How many of you really love tests? You just love them. I don't mean making them, you know, or grading them. I mean being under a test. And yet, in the midst of this test, here's what we see. J.I. Packer says this, why does God test us? God tests us to remind us. And he still, he seeks to fellowship his people. And he sends them both sorrows and joys to detach them from other loves and attach them to himself. That's why he tests us. We think about this in, in, in 1 Peter you know, chapter 1. It says this, um, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For God's glory, for our building of our faith, so that we would lean upon Jesus all the more. You know, James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, This counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's hard. Because I, I got to tell you, when I get trials in my life, my natural reflex is to push against them, to try to solve them, or bury my head in the sand and ignore them rather than rejoice in them. It's a hard thing. And yet, let me go back to what Packer says, because I think it's so good. He does this to remind us that he still seeks the fellowship of his people and he sends them both sorrows and joys to detach them from other loves and attach them to himself. It's the idea of abiding in Christ in the midst of the trials, in the midst of this testing, he is reminding Philip. Because remember, Philip was there when he turned all the water into wine. Remember these six huge stone jars and you know, Jesus turns the best wine into you know, um, this, this, this glorious feast. Um, of wine, the best wine that anybody has ever seen. Philip was there. Now, if you are going through trials right now, you might be asking yourself this question. Is this a test from God? Is the Lord testing me? And I know that many of you are, are going through some, a different uh, trial or, or difficulty. And so the question becomes, is the Lord testing us? Well, that's not the only reason you may have trials, but it might be one. There are other reasons why you might be in the midst of trials. Sometimes um, the trials that you're going through are a result of your own sin and folly, right? Like, I don't want to hear somebody say, you know, I lost my retirement savings betting on the Cleveland Browns, you know, uh, through, you know, whatever, you know, MGM or sports betting. And, but, but I was, but you don't understand, pastor, I was actually going to give, I was going to pay off the note on the church if I had won. If I had hit that triple parlay at that particular time, I was going to pay it all off. But because of, because the, the Lord is, is, is either testing me or Satan's against me, I am being persecuted for my faith. That's not true. You're being persecuted because you're a foolish person. You're being persecuted because you're bad at math, okay? I mean, gambling is just a tax on people who are bad at math, right? Um, so it might be your own folly that you're undergoing trials and difficulties. It might be, um, you may be suffering under the, you know, the sin of somebody else, and I get that. You know, the, the suffering uh, occurs because other people have sinned against you. Um, you're in relationships with other people and they have hurt you, they have mistreated you, they have not um, done well by you, and you are suffering because of the sins of other people. Sometimes that happens. It could be testing, it could be your own folly, it could be your suffering under the sins of others. Um, it could be a, a demonic attack. 
It could be collateral damage of the fall. I mean, all of these different things. Uh, but there are times when the Lord God will test you. And, and regardless of, of what's going on in the midst of the trials that you have, whether it's, you know, whatever trial it is, it's an opportunity for you to go to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, would you please help me to lean in upon him? Regardless of the trial, every trial is an opportunity to test your faith. And for you to go, am I leaning upon Jesus or am I leaning upon myself? Now, we see this. Again, we think about Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You know, and we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That all things. But look at what Philip says. Let's go back to you know, the passage. You know, what, what Philip is saying in the midst of this is Philip by the way, Philip fails the test, if you didn't know this. You know, Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii. Now, 200 denarii, you know, is, is really the, the uh, wages for about six months of a laborer. So he's basically saying, you know, I've done the calculation. And I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, eight. You know, he's done the calculation. And he goes, hey, even if we came up with like twenty-five dollars or $30,000 right now, it's not enough money for us to even get just a little bit for everybody out there. You see, the problem is that Philip is, is leaning not upon Jesus who turned water into wine, but he's leaning on his own pragmatism and his own skills and abilities. He's saying, well, if we had enough money, maybe if we had a store, but we don't. And by the way, he asks Philip because Philip was a fisherman on that lake and Philip had knowledge about that particular community. So if anybody um, were to know, it would be Philip about the area. And he goes, Philip, you know the area. Why don't you get him something to eat? And Philip's like, Ain't no way. Can't be done. It cannot be done. So sometimes, you know, we get in the way of ourselves because we, we recognize that we, we don't have the solution to the problem. And yet Jesus is saying, if I'm with you, it's going to work itself out. Now, when we think about this, we go to the next person in, in this story. And, and, and I love this uh, because the next person in the story is Andrew. And Andrew comes, and, and he has he's a little bit better answer. And, he's, and he goes up to Jesus, and, and one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, there's a couple things about this with, with regard to Andrew. I can't figure out if this is Andrew being faithful, saying, hey, I found a little bit. What can you do with this, Jesus? Or if he's being like, hey, I got this kid over here, and we're going to take his food, and we're going to distribute it to everybody else. Or if he's saying, hey, this boy came forward and is now giving all that he had so, to you, Jesus, so that you can eat. I'm not sure. But we do know that Andrew comes, but at the end of what Andrew says, he says, but what are they for so many? I mean, essentially what he's saying there is, like, we have this huge problem, this huge need, but we have so little. Why even try? Why even try? How about this? Do you have people in your life that you've shared the gospel with on multiple occasions? And there might come an opportunity where you can share the gospel with them one more time, but in your heart of hearts you go, why try? I've been trying the whole time. Maybe I should just give up. 
I think that oftentimes that's where we are. Or have you gotten to the point where you've been praying for something for so, so long? And you go, you know, why do I keep praying this over and over again? Maybe the Lord God of heaven is not listening, or maybe he doesn't care, or maybe I need to change my prayer, but I need to quit. I need to stop. And you feel defeated. I mean, I'm fairly certain that I've met with you and talked with many of you, that that's how you feel sometimes. But you see, the thing about Jesus and the thing about this little boy is, is this is, um, Jesus essentially says, will you trust me? Um, you see, what Jesus does is he takes the insufficient, and this is from James Boyce, he takes the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant, and it becomes sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. That's the beauty of what we see. You see, this boy is insignificant in the sense that, you know, he's, he's a, we know this, he's, he's actually poor um, in the sense that he has barley loaves, and, and barley was sort of the, 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 the saddest bread. I mean, it is a bread that you know, only the poor would eat, you know, because if they had really good, they would be eating grain, you know, not, not, not barley. Um, but he comes to Jesus and he takes something, and he's not even named in the scriptures. We do know that the boy, in, 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 a, in a good way, is he, he had a good mama, you know, because <laughs> she sent him out with something to eat. But he gave all that he had to Jesus. This poor little boy, he gave all that he had to Jesus, and Jesus did something amazing with the insignificant. Now, again, the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant becomes sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. And we see that God has been doing this throughout the history of, of, of the Old Testament, throughout all the scriptures, right? Like, this is what God does. This is who he is, and this is how he works in the midst of his people. I mean, think about it. Think about dust. What is significant about dust other than that you choke on it and you cough on it, right? But what did God use to create men and women? Molded by the hand of God, he created us out of the dust, or you think about, uh, you know, in, in the book of Judges, like the jawbone of a donkey. But in the hands of God's serpent, servant, Samson, it killed a thousand enemies. Or think about a walking stick or maybe a shepherd's staff or a shepherd's rod. And that's, it's just a piece of wood, right? It might lead and guide the shepherds. But, but when God places that staff into the hand of Moses, it becomes something far greater, or think about a sling, just a, a regular sling, you know, where you're, but you put that sling, and when God places that sling in the hands of David, it becomes something so significant that the people of God rout their enemies, the Philistines, because they see this young boy with these five smooth stones and this sling, and he hits the giant, Goliath, right between the eyes, it falls down, cuts off his head, you know, and then the people of God say, well, if this little boy can do it with a sling, we're going to rout the armies of the Philistines. But you want to talk about something that's even more, or someone else who's maybe even less significant? How about as insignificant as a young girl? one named Mary, and God used this insignificant, insufficient individual to be the mother of Jesus. 
And that's why we celebrate Advent. Think about that. God takes the insufficient and the insignificant, and when we give it to Jesus, he does something marvelous with it. Astounding. Now, when we think about this, I want us to think about the idea of, you know, five barley loaves and two fish, right? You know, we think about this idea of time and talent and treasure. And as this young boy, I think that we're called to give what we have to the Lord. And he'll multiply it. And he will use it. And he will benefit his kingdom. And he will benefit us through the use of our gifts. Now think about your gifts that you have, right? You know, maybe you don't have five barley loaves and you know, two fish. But what, you do have a gift that you can give. Are you, um, think about the gift of time. You know, many of us feel very, very busy. But there are others, you know, maybe, maybe you have more time than, than, you, than you have. Maybe you're retired. Maybe you're, you're, you know what's great now? Is that all the students starting on like maybe this week, now they have a month off or so. You have more time. So is time your gift? Are you one because of your age or your circumstances simply has time on your hands that many others who are already engaged in work or projects do not have? If so, that is a gift. Ask God to show you how you can use your gift for his glory and his people. Give as much of it as you can. And I, and I, I love the fact that you know, there's a bunch of people right now who are giving their time serving children's church over there so that the little ones might know who Jesus is. That's a good thing. And if you serve in that ministry on other Sundays, thank you. If you serve in the nursery, thank you. Thank you for doing that. If you serve in the youth group, thank you. If you serve setting up, thank you. Give of your time. You know, it might be that you have, you know, money to give. That's fine. It's not a stewardship sermon. Although I will say this, that we have this perspective, you know, in the, in the world that um, really the, it's that my money is my money. You know what we call that? We call that selfishness. There's another way that we say your money is my money. We call that stealing, <laughs> right? There's another way we think about it too. And we go, my money is God's. All that I have is God's. We call that stewardship. Are we selfish? Are we stealing? Or are we good stewards? It might be that you have a talent. It may be that you have a talent that you can use. You know, it might be uh, administration or it might be teaching. It might be cleaning. It might be fixing. It might be singing. You know, everybody here has a talent. You know, everybody here in this room has a talent. So what are you good at? How has God gifted you with skills, gifts, and abilities? And how do you take those talents and how do you bring them to the Lord so that he might multiply them and use them for his, for his glory and his kingdom? Everybody has one, Right? I mean, everybody has one. Administration, you're fixing, cleaning, teaching, serving, training. I don't care what it is. Everybody has one, and we're called to do that. Matter of fact, when we go to the new members class, um, I tell people, uh, Christians are, are meant to do this. We're meant to, meant to and I'm going to use John chapter 6 here. We're meant to worship, we're meant to feast, and we're meant to serve. Now, by worship, I mean that we're supposed to come in here as God has called us to do to renew our covenant uh, vows and faithfulness to him every Sunday, that we are called to be in rhythm with him every week. And when we miss worship with him, we miss out. Now, in terms of feasting, we could also call that abiding, but we're called to feast upon his word. We're called to be in the midst of discipleship. If I'm using John 6 language, we are to feast upon his body, and we are to, to drink deeply of his blood, to abide with Christ, to be connected to Jesus. 
That's what we're talking about there. To be involved in discipleship, a small group, Sunday school, a life group. We're meant to be connected and abiding with Christ, feasting on the Lord. If you're a Christian, you should worship, feast, and then the third thing is to serve. We're meant to serve. So I'm just telling you, you know, those three things, if you've got two of those things, your stool's going to topple over. <laughs> you need a three-legged stool to sit on as a believer. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, you know, George is telling me to do stuff, and, and I'm weary. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. And I get it. I get it. Um, because some of you came into church this morning, and you were overwhelmed with grief or anxiety or all of those things. And um, in the midst of trials and difficulties, you might come in and you don't feel as if you have anything to offer. You come in and you go, I got nothing but sadness today. I got nothing but difficulty. And I'm overwhelmed. And you're broken and sad and terribly weary to the point of overwhelming despair. Let me share with you something from Elizabeth Elliot, who's a Christian author, but also a missionary. Some of you know the story of her husband, Jim Elliot, but here's what Elizabeth Elliot says. And I think this is beautiful for those who are weary and broken. If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is this, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It is his business. It is his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. Every Sunday, every day, you have something to offer. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Offer what little you have. And then rest in me. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to earn our salvation but rather someone else earns our salvation. You don't have to be good enough because Jesus was great enough. The truth of the gospel is this, is that if you trust and believe in Jesus, then all your sins are forgiven. When we look to Jesus as our Savior and King, he pays the penalty for all of our sins. And he, then he ushers us into his kingdom as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. One of the, the great things about being in a family, 
is when you get to go home for the holidays and you have a loving mother and father and they haven't seen you for a while and all they want to do is throw their arms around you. God the Father wants to throw his arms around you because you are in Christ and you have believed. Now, um, one other thing about this passage that I want to make, make mention of is I want you to see this that after they, Jesus does this, one of the, um, Jesus said to the disciples, you know, after Andrew says, but what are they for so many? And Jesus says to them, have the people sit down. And the disciples are like, what? You want us to have the people sit down? We were kind of hoping you would disperse the crowd, that they would all go out and eat somewhere and not stay here. But Jesus said, have the people sit down that there, were, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, here's the point. Miracles take sweat, by the disciples. The disciples are thinking, wait a minute, anybody here been a waiter or a waitress? Just raise your hand, I'm just kind of curious. It's a really easy job, right? <laughs> really, really simple. I mean, all you have to do is not be, you know, too over the top. You know, you got you a million different things going on. And now the 12 disciples have to actually be the waiter and waitress for you know, upwards of 20,000 people. And these guys are tired. And they're thinking, what are we going to do with these five barley loaves and these two fish? It should go really, really quickly. But in the midst of this miracle, Jesus decides to use the disciples to bring about a great miracle for the people and for the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples, these miracles take place in the hands of the disciples. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, we have five small loaves, two fish. I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to look like a fool in front of all of these people trying to just you know, give like a little crumb here, right? Here's a crumb for you. Here's a scale of a sardine for you. Here you go, right? But their cynicism was overridden by their faith in this. And what we see is taking a step of obedience allows them to see the miracle on the other side of unbelief. That's what we see going on right here, is that you know, not only were they um, giving out the fish, but it, look at verse 11, where it says, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, in verse 12 actually, and when they had eaten their fill, meaning that it's not just a little bit, they ate their fill and were satisfied so that there was a lot of fish, there was a lot of bread, and, and the Lord God of heaven just allowed them to you know, serve. Now, could have, Jesus could have you know, created a loaf of bread in everybody's pocket that day, right? He could have. But he decided to use the disciples to bring about a great miracle for the kingdom of God. Now, what I mean by that is that there are times where you're know, reaching the lost, planting churches, sending missionaries out. God will be using instruments, dull as they might be, right? 
He's going to use the instrumentality of his people to bring about his glory and for his kingdom. Let me give you an example, just here at the church. Have you ever seen uh, how much work and time goes into VBS? And I love that we spend a lot of time on VBS. But I got to tell you, I mean, there are people here like every day, or at least I'm not here every day. I just assume they are, right? I mean, they're, they're here all the time, you know, creating and getting ready. And what are they getting ready for? They're getting ready so that small children might know the name of Jesus. And the transforming power of the gospel, you know, wrought about through the Holy Spirit, you know, that is the instrumentality of the people of God working together so that small ones, maybe not even small ones, I think adult leaders are encouraged by, their, by Jesus in the midst of this so that they might see and believe. You know, that is God using people to bring about his kingdom and his glory. And I got to tell you, it takes a lot of work. So much work, in fact, that I'm pretty sure Jenny Lichty falls asleep for three days. Just is wiped out. But it's a beautiful thing. And I want you to know that, that miracles take the sweat of the people of God. So what, what talent do you have? Come and use it. Come and give it. So that the small amount of talent that you might have might be multiplied for the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things that we get to do in the midst of the body of Christ is we get to, when I say feast and, and worship, one of the things that we get to do is that the Lord God of heaven has given us these signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And this bread right here represents his body broken for you. And this cup that is filled with, with this juice, this fruit of the vine, represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites all those who trust and believe in Jesus to come forward. You know, on the night when he was betrayed, he took this bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took this cup and said, this cup is the, represents the new covenant. This represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because what we celebrate in the midst of this is that if we're abiding in Christ, if we're connected to Jesus, if we're joined to Christ, as we feast on this bread and drink of this, this fruit of the vine, this, this juice, then we are connected to him and that we are saved and we are forgiven and we are adopted into the family of God, all because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what we believe. Would you pray with me? And as I pray, I would pray that those who are serving on the worship team would come forward first. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would set this apart. And Father, that it would be a means of grace. Father, we know that it will always remain bread and always remain juice. But Father, we pray, Lord, that you would pour forth your spirit upon your people, that as we partake together as the family of God, that we would be encouraged and that we would know that we are forgiven and loved. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come, we would think, Lord, as an act of worship, how can I give what little I have to you? For Father, you have given us all. You have given us your son. So, Father, help us. Help us to feast and abide in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.